Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 17 as we are making our way through this great book. I had someone tell me uh, last night that they had a friend who was also a preacher and he was also going through the book of Exodus. And that preacher was informed uh, last week by one of uh, the members that they weren't coming back to church until he was done with Exodus. Um, I hope that is not you, and I hope you don't feel that way, Uh, but certainly uh, we can see the same themes coming up over and over and over again uh, each week. Exodus chapter 17, if I were to begin this morning by asking you this question, how would you gauge the pulse or gauge the mood of our country? If you had to explain that within a minute or two to tell someone what you thought the mood of our people are, how would it be that you describe it? I could argue that within our lifetime, perhaps, we have not ever seen a country this divided over all kinds of various issues. Many of you saw several weeks ago, uh, as I did, as the leaked document came out of the Supreme Court about the potential of overturning Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs-Jackson case. And we saw what perhaps might happen here fairly soon. And we have seen how it polarizes certain people on, on both sides of the aisle. And it really does seem to be one of the key dividing issues of our time. Southern Baptist over 30 years ago signed a resolution saying we were going to commit to work towards seeing Roe v. Wade overturned. It looks like quite possible that it just might happen. And can I tell you that as a a pastor, as someone who believes in the Bible, that we stand firmly under the idea and the notion that life, life begins at conception. It begins at conception. And so we fight and we contend. But yet as we look out into our country, we see people that are on both sides of the aisle that are passionate about it and they are deeply unsatisfied. They are deeply discomforted by this notion and and it perhaps will get worse in the coming weeks, but they are not satisfied and, and they are restless. Can we say that in Exodus 17, the Hebrews in this moment are not satisfied and they are restless. They are restless in their relationship with the Lord. They are restless in the understanding that they are to walk with God by faith and and to trust him on a daily basis to live out of the overflow of their relationship with them and that he will satisfy and he will bring comfort to all things. Yet they are a people that continually, regularly forget it over and over and over again. And so in Exodus 17, We really get a lesson from the Hebrews about what not to do and how to talk to God. And they really issue within these verses three real general complaints, not just to Moses, but to the Lord about their circumstance and about when things have not gone their way. And so they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And and we are mindful of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, to do not grumble, to, to do not complain. But first and foremost, what we begin to see in the Hebrews is they begin to demand things from the Lord. They command him oftentimes in ways. 
Look with me at the text in verse 1. It says, so all the congregation of the people of Israel, they moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and they said to him, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you, God's people, test the Lord? They enter into this posture and this rhythm and their relationship with him where they begin to demand that he do certain things for them. Interestingly, in this moment where the Lord has them camped at Rephidim, it means resting place. It means that God has provided and given them precisely what they need when they needed it. That he wasn't late, that he wasn't early, that he was just right where he needed to be in his relationship with them. And so he gives them rest at this place. And yet it says that they begin to test the Lord. And they begin to grumble and they begin to complain and they begin to demand. What this is indicative of in this relationship with the Hebrews is when God does not do for us what we think he ought to do and in the way we think he should do it, we often fall into the temptation just like the Hebrews and we begin to complain. Our hearts become unsettled with where we are and we become restless as a people. We become unsatisfied then in those moments. And so we begin to demand and we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. Last week I shared with you a story and I guess for the next eight weeks the Lord is going to give me illustrations that have to do with my son's little league baseball team. And I've been wrestling all week with this idea of how to illustrate this idea of walking in obedience and doing what it is that I was told to do and being comforted in the presence of God and walking faithful. Well, the same young man that I told you about last week, he, he did not fail to perform yesterday for us. And he gets up into the batter's box yesterday and he's looking around in all kinds of directions and he's about the 40th hitter that had come up and we had cycled through two or three innings and he's done it over and over and over again. And I get up there and I say, Eli, are you ready? And he says, yes, but don't pitch to me. I just want to hit it off the tee. And so with the league that we're in, you get three pitches from the coach and if they don't hit it, they get to hit it off the tee and then off they go. And so it's just a way to teach them the game. He says, I don't want you to toss me the ball. I just want to hit it off the tee, coach. And I said, well, Eli, I think you could do it. He said, I'm not going to do it. Put, put the T up. Again, a 40-year-old fixing to argue with a six-year-old. And I said, fine, I'll acquiesce. And so I put the T up, put the ball on there. And I said, now do just like we've been practicing. He looked me dead in the eyes. He looked at the ball. And then he did what, what I've never seen before in baseball, where he approached the plate, then he proceeded to take three turns with his body in the box, where he then, I watched, eyes closed, swung, and he actually hit the ball. <laughs> Took off running down first baseline. Forgot in that moment to leave his bat on the ground and carried it with him running towards the first baseman with the bat in the air and I got over to first base to tell him good job and I said, why did you just do that? What were you thinking? And I said it in a kind way and he just simply said, because I wanted to. I said, and that you did, my friend. Great job. 
But I thought, you know, within Eli's relationship and the relationship that we have as a coach and a player, and I looked over at his parents and his parents were sort of mortified in the process. And I said, we'll work on that this coming week. But isn't that true for a lot of us often at times is that we want to do what we want to do. And when we come to those places, oftentimes in our own spiritual journey, it, it breeds us and leaves us into a season of great discontentment. And we become restless, walking according to our own eyes and, and with our own wisdom. Well, the Hebrews in this moment began to put the Lord their God to the test when God had given them rest and he had given them precisely what it was that they needed. Verse 3 the word says, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You see, the first sin in that moment was they were demanding things from the Lord. Now in this moment, their sin is they were ignoring the protection of God up until this moment. They were a people who so quickly forgot that the Lord cared for them and he knew them and he understood them and he was providing all of the things and he had delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, yet how quickly they forgot about his goodness and about his protection and about his power and his control in their life. And they have this testimony of God protecting them all of these in this journey and, and walking them into the wilderness and going to deliver them soon into the promised land. Yet even in this moment, they say, you brought us out of Egypt just to kill us of thirst. Our livestock, our goods, our possessions, all the things that we have now are going to be gone. And what they began to do, which I think often many times we are guilty of, is they begin to presume the worst about God. They begin to forget about his kindness and his goodness, his compassion and his loving mercy to them. They presumed the worst and had concluded that he had abandoned them even to the point of death, even in this moment. We often complain about what God is doing in our lives sometimes because we perhaps don't like the circumstance or the situation that we find ourselves in, especially what might seem harmful to us in these moments. And perhaps we could be guilty just as the Hebrews were, where we begin to deny the protection of God in our lives, his hand over us as he guides us and as he moves and as he provides for his people. Do you believe that truth this morning? That whatever your circumstance is today, whatever your season is today, to be reminded of God's faithfulness in your life and his protection in your life, that he cares for you and that he knows what it is that you're going through. He knows the deepest parts of your heart. He knows all of the external realities that exist in front of you. He knows all the obstacles that are in front of you, the people perhaps that might be in front of you. And he, as a good, kind God, knows the way and he protects his people. He is faithful. And so they say, why do you bring us up out of Egypt just to kill us, our children, to have our livestock removed from us? And so Moses cries to the Lord in verse 4. And he, say, what, he says to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people. Taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, 
and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, the third chief complaint of the Hebrews in this moment was not that they were just demanding, not that they had forgotten the protection of God, but they were doubting the faithfulness of the Lord in this moment to continually to provide for his people. And so what does the Lord do? He instructs Moses in a very specific way to go and strike the rock and out of the rock, the water comes up and he meets the need that existed amongst his people. Perhaps there are some of you here today that you're praying for a staff like Moses and a rock to be struck and water to come up and provision somehow within your own life for God to meet those needs, to to heal you of your sickness, to, to deal with your doubts, to give you more faith. Listen to me, my friend. Our God is faithful to accomplish all of those things in your life. That you have a testimony, many of you, just as the Hebrews did in this moment of his regular faithfulness and meeting the needs in your life over and over and over again. Don't doubt the faithfulness of the Lord. For he has always been faithful. He has never done something that he said he wouldn't do. He never not followed up on a promise. He, he always executed perfectly and, and his timing was always perfect. He was never too early and he was never too late. He was just right there, right when he needed to be. But I want you to notice something that's peculiar in the text. When we get to verse 7, we see that he tells them to name the place Massah and Meribah. And these two words together, they mean something significant here in the Hebrew that we can't miss. They literally connote this idea of of to strive and to argue and to dispute, to contend. And so one scholar rightly points out that the reason why he calls this, and we see this word tested used in verse 7 and used back up in verse 2, they test the Lord. And so what scholars believe that in this moment, the naming of the location and the testing, what the Hebrews did in this moment was not just complain, but as one scholar rightly said, they put their God on trial. They contended against him in this moment, doubting his faithfulness and his protection and his provision and the names that that exist here in this moment, they imply that that it was almost as if these legal cases before a, a court of law were being brought before Moses. This was how obstinate their hearts were and their spirit was towards God in this moment. It was the people putting God on trial, but it really didn't have anything to do with the means in which they went about it, but rather the condition of their heart and how they felt towards God. What they falsely believed about him and what they began to do is they began to do one of the chief things that many of us do when we face difficult circumstances. They evaluate their situation first and foremost through their experience rather than looking to the character and looking to the heart of God. They were letting their experience inform the the truth and the reality of who God is. See and know God first. Believe in his goodness towards you. Then and only then do you evaluate your circumstance. 
And where we get in trouble too often is we let the truth of God's word become the last thing that we allow to inform the difficulty of the situation that we find ourselves in. It's a very postmodern thought and an idea that, that we let our experience inform the truth. What, when what we would say is what the Bible contends, what God wants from his people, what Jesus teaches throughout the gospels is that we are to always let the truth of God's word inform how it is that we think and view the world. How we understand conflict and geopolitical issues and things like Roe v. Wade and others, we allow the truth of God's word first and foremost to be the thing that drives us and to be the thing that guides us. Oh, let us not be like the Hebrews and suffer from what we would just call spiritual amnesia. Forgetting about the truthfulness of his word and the goodness and the kindness of our God. For he has been faithful and always giving. If you had one minute to stand before a stranger, and perhaps you would never see that stranger ever again, but you had one minute to give a testimony to that person about the faithfulness of God in your life recently, what would you tell them? What would you say to them? What would be the thing that points to the very fact that this God that we serve today, he has always been faithful in your life. And so if you had one minute to tell that friend or to tell that stranger or that person about his faithfulness, what would you say? What would be your testimony today? In the same way that God was with Israel at Horeb, he is with the church through his spirit and in Christ. The Lord is, he is our rock. This rock that brought water from, from above the ground and it provided the nourishment to the, to the people in that moment. Our Jesus, he is our rock and we as his people, we trust in who he is. The Bible says elsewhere that he refers to God as the rock. He is the rock of Israel in Genesis 49, 24. He's the rock whose works are perfect in Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock who is a fortress and a refuge according to Psalm 18, 2. He is the rock of our salvation according to Psalm 95, 1. The rock that Moses struck with his rod was a symbol in that moment of God and his salvation for his people. It ultimately points to this idea how God would submit to the blow of his own justice so that he would flow from him and through him would be living water for the people of God to respond. And the rock that was struck by divine wrath and judgment was Christ. He was the one who bore our sin. He was the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed, according to the word, for our iniquities. He was the one that was broken. And he received our judgment. And this judgment that he received was proof that, that he cares enough for his people to redeem them to the Father, to save them first and foremost from their sins. And he took the judgment upon himself. Furthermore, the Word of God says elsewhere in John's Gospel that Jesus is the water of life. He's the water that, that God gives in that moment to the Hebrews, and that water points to this idea that one day God would send a Redeemer to save His people and to give them something more than just physical nourishment, but to give them spiritual nourishment according to His presence. 
Because Christ, in this moment, he is our provider and he is our protector. And then according to the word, anyone who comes to him by faith is going to be filled with that living water. Because he bore the judgment for our sins, just as that rock did in that moment, pointing one day to the fact that Christ would come and receive the wrath of the Father. And the Bible says that anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord to repent of sins and you will be saved. You will be made right and whole and reconciled to the Father. You trust him. You believe in, in his goodness and in his kindness that he wants to meet the physical needs in your life, but most importantly today, he wants to meet the spiritual needs that exist within your life. He wants to meet the doubts and the loneliness. He wants to meet the anxiety. He wants to meet the, the lack of trust, all of those things that perhaps you might wrestle with today, doubting the goodness of God in your life. He will always meet those needs. But you must trust him. And you must pursue faithfulness. This past Friday, I was informed that someone in our church that many of you know, but perhaps many of you don't know, our friend Charles. And this past Friday, Charles lost his life in a battle with cancer. And one of the unique things about Charles is Charles was a graduate of Southwestern Seminary, his wife, Regina. They, they just had a, a baby boy this past January. And about the time that COVID came and we began this process of shutting down, Charles was diagnosed with a pretty aggressive form of cancer. Now, I know that many of you perhaps have struggled with cancer before and, and you've lost loved ones to cancer. And I recognize that we sit on common ground. But one of the unique things about Charles is he was put basically on a, on a hit list or a kill list where he is not allowed, was allowed to go back into his country in the 1040 window because he was so passionate about sharing the gospel with people and telling people about the good news. And, and ultimately it got him banned from where he grew up and all that he that he knew. And so he comes here to go to school and he joins Travis active in, in the Dow Sunday school class. And they've done a marvelous job over the past year and a half, two years, Shaw Thompson, and just taking care of Charles. But here's the deal. And I struggle with, with knowing when to come to the church on things like this and what to do and when is it appropriate because I know that, that, that people die regularly and people suffer and, and there is sickness and disease. But, but, but this man who lost his life on Friday, he leaves behind a very precious wife and a little baby boy and nowhere to go and can't go back home to, to mom and dad and so they're here. And so what I'm asking this morning for you, there is a team that is surrounding Regina and loving on Charles. They're, they're in a great class and Regina is being cared for. But the weight of this in this moment, it, it, not that the Dow class can't handle it by any means, but, but, but the weight of this moment in this situation of one of our own is really not just, uh, uh, I use a burden, not in, the, in a wrong way, but it really is, I think pastorally, it's the responsibility of not just the Dow class, I think it's the responsibility in this moment of Travis Avenue. So here's what I'm asking. I, I'm asking that if you would pray about how you might be able to help Regina in these next few months, she's gonna receive Charles's salary for the next two months. She's got a monthly need somewhere of around $4,300. And quite frankly, in this moment, we don't know what's going to happen after the two months are up. 
And so I'm doing only what I know to do as a pastor and just say, come into the church. And I've watched our church do some incredible things and meet needs. And I'm just saying, we need some help. And so I'm asking you to pray and to consider. We've got a document that we would share with you at a later date. You can contact Brad Dow, uh, Kent Sanders, even our business office will make that available. And it gives greater detail about uh, what's going on and how these, uh, our, our people are already working with her and to provide for her needs and that precious little boy whose dad just went to be with Jesus. Charles was a faithful man. His wife is a faithful woman and they need our help. And so here's our invitation today. Here's our altar call. We just want to go before the Lord and ask him to put on your heart, put on my heart, how you might be able to help, how we can financially assist, maybe how you could partner with Brad Dow's class and Shaw Thompson and Kent Sanders and, and just say, how can I help care for Regina and this little boy in the coming months and perhaps maybe even in the coming years? For she is one of our own. She is us. And so with every head bowed and eyes closed, would you just pray and would you ask the Lord, like what would the Lord God put on your heart and how you could possibly help? Father, we come to you in a posture of gratitude and thankfulness for your goodness and kindness in our life as a church. Even in the goodness and kindness in the life of Charles and his wife, Regina. You are good and near, even in the midst of this terrible disease. And Father, we know that he has been made whole and he is no longer sick and he is with you. He is with the Savior that he spent his life talking about and preaching and proclaiming and sharing. So Father, now I just pray that you would let the church be the church, that we come to you in a, in a spirit of humility and gratitude. Father, I pray for anyone who is here today that does not know you and have a personal relationship with you like Charles did. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would call upon your name and that they would be too saved. And so Father, we love you and we pray and ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And God's people said, amen.